Hello, and thanks for listening to this sermon from Ethos Chicago. We're a church that worships and serves together in Chicago, Illinois, and you can find us online at ethoschicago.com. Good morning, Ethos. We're excited to see you all in a few minutes for our second outdoor communion service. We're excited to move into that phase, even as we continue to do our primary worship service here by video. So we'll see you then. And in the meantime, let's do this call to worship from Psalm 108. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. Your steadfast love is great above the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. And now let's pray together. Oh God, you are so good. Your faithfulness is higher um, than the reaches of the sky. And your righteousness is deeper than the seas. Your love is steadfast and unconditional. And we thank you for all those truths. You are high and exalted above all gods. There's no one that compares to you. I pray that we would worship you today as we join this video um, as a church, that we would worship who you are, what you have done. Thank you so much for your presence with us right now and always. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. 
And now is the time to uh, confess our sins, and we're going to do that corporately through this. Merciful God, you made us in your image with a mind to know you, a heart to love you, and a will to serve you. But our knowledge is imperfect, our love inconsistent, our obedience incomplete. Day by day, we fail to grow into your likeness. In your tender love, forgive us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And now let's have a time of private confession. And now hear these words from Scripture to assure you of the grace that you have been given from Ephesians. God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Jonah chapter one. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? 
for the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Hello, Ethos. Good to be with you again. Thanks, as I say every week, for making the time to join us in this time of worship. Today we're going to start a new series. We're going to start a new series looking at one of my favorite books in the entire Bible. We're going to look at the book of Jonah, a book that is filled with surprises. And I hope that through looking at many of those surprises that we'll learn some great lessons together in this series. You know, I think most people have probably, well, a lot of people have heard of Jonah and the whale. And if you know anything about the story, you probably have some preconceived idea about the point of the story. For instance, you might think that it's about God's miraculous intervention. It's about God's mirac the miraculous lengths uh, that God will go to save his people. For instance, having a fish uh, swallow uh, his prophet in order to save him from drowning. Or you might think that Jonah is about second chances. You know, a man disobeys and God graciously and miraculously and somewhat humorously intervenes and teaches the man a lesson and gives him a second chance. Or you might think that Jonah is about overcoming our fears, uh, doing what God commands despite our fear and seeing God then respond in miraculous ways. And here's the thing, if you thought that Jonah was about any of these things, you would be wrong. So I want you to forget basically everything you've ever thought about Jonah. Because here's what we need to know as we begin our study, as we begin to look at this book uh, this morning. We need to remember that Jonah is way more than a fish story. Jonah is the greatest, in my opinion, negative illustration in the Bible. The whole point of Jonah is to show us what not to do, or better, what not to be like. Jonah is about a people, the people of God who had lost the heart of God. Jonah is about a people, the very people of God who had forgotten their role, had forgotten their mission, their purpose, the very reason that God had called them into existence. Jonah, in other words, is a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call for the people of God, or to put it this way, Jonah is a reminder to the people of God that we cannot put our God in a box that our God is bigger and stranger and more loving than we could ever imagine. And our God cares about and wants to shower His grace and His mercy and His love on people from the entire world, even people who some might consider to be unworthy, even people who some might consider to be evil, even people who some might consider to be their enemies. 
That's what I want us to focus on because that's really the point of this book. Now, I realize that I've started off kind of framing this book of Jonah in a very negative way, but let me assure you it has a very positive message. You know, through this incident that we're going to look at in the life of this wayward and rebellious prophet named Jonah, God wants to teach us some very powerful lessons, lessons about racism, about nationalism, but most importantly, lessons about mercy. He wants us to learn that mercy receivers need to be mercy givers. The people who have received and experienced and have felt the mercy of God need to be people who extend that mercy to others, even those who are not like themselves. And so that's what Jonah's about. And before we dive in, would you join me in prayer and asking God to be the real teacher here? Father, thank you for this book. I love the surprises. I love kind of the approach. But Lord, most importantly, I love the message. And I pray that we would have open hearts to receive what you would want to teach us. Um, where we come from different places, uh, different circumstances. Um, and Lord, I pray that wherever we're at, whether we're on a spiritual high or a spiritual low, uh, that you would meet us right in that point and be the real teacher uh, through this series and even today. Bless us and encourage us. May your spirit take your word and make it come alive to us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, as we start uh, looking, of course, at chapter one, I want to tell you chapter one is all about the problem, if you will. This chapter gives us the reason why so often it is that we are not the mercy givers that God desires us to be, or why it is often so difficult for us to extend mercy to others, particularly those that are different than ourselves. And if I could just put it in a nutshell, what we're going to see is the problem is this, our sinful hearts. And then this morning uh, in chapter one, we're going to look at the first great surprise in this book, and we're going to see it right off the bat in the first three verses. It's the surprise of the running prophet. And there are three critical lessons, not surprising to anybody, uh, that the running prophet teaches us with respect to this problem of our hearts. And it teaches us the nature of the problem, the effects of the problem, and what God is prepared to do about this problem. And today, for sake of time, I'm just going to look at the first of these lessons. Today, we're just going to look at the nature of the problem. And it's here in the beginning that we are given an intro into a subject that can, we can't avoid, really. We can't avoid it if we're going to make any progress in the Christian faith, and particularly if we're going to become this kind of, these kind of mercy givers uh, that God desires us to be. And the fact of the matter is we can't avoid this subject of sin. Now, to be clear, this book never uses the word sin, but it maps out, particularly in this first chapter, the real nature of sin. and gives us an understanding of sin that goes, in my mind, deeper than almost any other book of the Bible, any other place in the Bible. It certainly challenges us with respect to what we traditionally think the definition of sin is. And what we see here is that there's a kind of sin in Jonah's heart a magnitude of sin in Jonah's heart, that despite the fact that he's a prophet, that he's a servant of God, a moral and religious leader, it flew under the radar. It flew under his radar. He didn't even see it until it erupted and his whole life blew up. Now, let me show you what I mean. Let's look at the very beginning of this chapter. And it starts out, it starts out like you would expect a book of a prophet to start out. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. 
And that's very technical language. It occurs quite often in the Old Testament. It describes the, the calling and the functioning of a prophet. A prophet is someone called by God to speak, to teach, to communicate God's will, God's word to God's people. And in this instance, God comes to Jonah and he says, I've got a job for you today. I want you to go to Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria, and call out against it because of their evil. And let's face it, if you've done some study, the Assyrians were by all stretch, well, by all, they were an evil people. They were brutal and ruthless, and if they came at you, they did not extend any mercy. And so God says, go to Nineveh and call out against that evil. And then we get to verse 3, and then here's where we see the issue. It says, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. And so let me ask a very simple question. What is Jonah doing? And of course, the easy answer is he's fleeing. Of course, dummy, he's fleeing. He's running away. Jonah is the running prophet. God said, I want you to go 600 miles to the east. And Jonah got up and tried to go and started running 3,000 miles to the west. Tarshish, by the way, is located in what we know today as Seville, Spain. It's about as far away from Israel and as far away from Nineveh, for that matter, as you could go at that time. And so Jonah was trying to get away. But let me ask you, and I won't ask you to raise your hand because that would be stupid because I can't see you. Um, but have you ever sensed God wanting you to do something and you don't? You just don't do it. You read the word and you say, yeah, I should do that. But you don't. Yeah, I think most of us can relate to that. Well, I want you to notice something here. That's not what happened with Jonah. Notice it doesn't just say the Lord asked Jonah to go to Nineveh and he didn't. If that's what happened, that's just an incident. That's just an act of disobedience. No, this is not some isolated incidence of disobedience. This is a resignation, a resignation. This is the real answer to that question, what is Jonah doing? What is Jonah doing? This is Jonah's way of saying, I quit. You can take this job and whatever. You know, being a prophet was Jonah's vocation. It was his purpose. It was his identity. Jonah was called by God to be this very thing. And so everything in his life was oriented to what God had called him to be. And so when Jonah gets up and flees, when he gets up and runs, in effect, Jonah is saying, yes, I quit. I am no longer going to live my life based on what you say. I'm not, no longer going to get my identity based on what you want. I'm going to go off and I'm going to run my life my way. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to live my life the way I want to live it. And this is the very definition, the very essence of sin. Simply put, sin is saying, I'm going to base my existence. I'm going to build an identity apart from God and the Word of God. You know, Soren Kierkegaard, in his book, Sickness Unto Death, defines sin this way. He said, sin is the despair of getting a self before God and then the despair of seeking to be oneself without God. You see, the essence of sin isn't simply breaking the rules. It's trying to build an identity with and apart from God. And that's why I think, in large part, our culture has such a hard time acknowledging even the existence of sin. Because let's face it, the essence of our culture, of our radical individualism, is this idea that you create your own self. Nobody else can tell you who you are, what to believe, what is right, and what is wrong. 
And we see it lived out now <laughs> almost on a daily basis in this pandemic, whether it's we talk about wearing masks or whether people getting in crowds or crowded spaces. You know, they're, everybody's saying, I don't care what you think. I don't care what others think. I am my own person. I have my own sense of value and worth, a value and worth that I have created. And this is the fundamental assumption of high culture and the fundamental assumption, uh, assumption of popular culture that we can decide who we are, we can validate ourselves. But let me ask you a question. Do we really have the power to do that? Do we really have the power to validate ourselves? I mean, if you think you can, let me ask some questions. Why do you live where you live? Why do you drive the car that you drive? Why do you work where you work? Why do you wear the clothes that you wear? Why do you have the books on your shelves? No, I didn't say read, but why do you have the books on your shelves that you do? Or why do you care what your boyfriend or your girlfriend look like? You know, for a culture that takes such pride in having and creating its own sense of worth and value, we certainly seem to care an awful lot about what other people think of us, what other people think of us. And there's a reason for that. We need a word from outside. We can't just say, I'm all right, and have it mean anything. There has to be a word from outside. And here's the thing. Here's the point of this. If we don't get that word from God, we will be deeply dependent upon all sorts of other outside sources for that word. We're going to have to listen. We're going to have to get and listen to all sorts of other what we might call small G gods. We're going to have to make a, a God of our boyfriend or girlfriend, a God of our work, a God of our parenting, a God of our respectability. We're going to have to get something They'll put its hands on us and say, well done, because we can't do it ourselves. Here's the problem. It never works. Not only will our identity be completely unstable, unstable. I mean, for instance, if your God is your parenting, I mean, try basing any stability on your God being your parenting. If that's where you're getting your worth, you're always going to be unstable and you're always going to be at risk of having your life eventually blow up. And that's exactly what happened to Jonah. And here's, what I want us to see. here's where I want us to see the second aspect of the problem. And I want to do it by asking another question. Who is this guy running from God? I mean, really, who is the bad guy in this book? Who is the one who looks foolish? Who is the one who's mired in sin in the story? And it's obvious, isn't it? Throughout the book, Jonah makes everybody else and everything else look good. Jonah makes the so-called heathen sailors look good. I mean, they're way smarter than he is. They're smart enough to be terrified when, he, when they learn that he's running from God. And they make these ruthless and barbaric Ninevites look like heroes compared to Jonah. So who's the bad guy? It's the religious guy. It's the preacher. It's the guy who on the outside has this religious act together. And here's where we see the deceptiveness of sin. And this leads to the second lesson. You know, the first is this. Sin is more than breaking the rules. It's, it's building identity apart from God. And second, it can be done underneath all kinds of relig relig bleh, religiosity and morality. You can be very moral. You can be keeping all the rules. You can be a leader in the church. And just like a dormant volcano, you can still, underneath the surface, be creating an identity that is just waiting to blow up. I mean, let me play Captain Obvious here and just say it. 
what we look on the outside may not match what's really going on on the inside. And what we look like to others may not match the real condition of our hearts. And here's what's important to know. You can fool others, but you cannot fool God. And God loves us too much. He loves you too much. Not to lovingly and sometimes intentionally and even painfully expose what's really going on in our hearts. So let me tie this together by asking a third question. What does it mean to run from God? I mean, how do you run from someone who's everywhere? I mean, Jonah knows that God is everywhere. If you look at verse 9, it says, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. I mean, he knows God is everywhere. So what does it mean to run from God? And that's, again, where verse 3 gives us a clue here. It says this, where it says, Jonah rose to flee from the presence of God, from the presence of God. You know, in Hebrew, it literally means he started, it literally says he's running from the face of the Lord. And we've talked about this before. But when the Bible refers to the face of the Lord, it has a very special and specific meaning. It's talking about something that's relational, the actual experience of God's presence. And that's what we mean, for instance, in the benediction. When I say, may the Lord make his face to shine upon you, I'm asking for the blessing of God's experiential presence in our lives, in your life. See, God's not running from the spatial presence of, Jonah's not running from the spatial presence of God because you can't do that. No, he's running from the relational presence of God. God's face isn't the experience of his spatial presence. It's the relational experience of God, God's centrality and his intimacy. And to run from God means that God's no longer in the center of your life. It means running away from the center of God's will, which in this instance was Nineveh. And see, wherever, whatever it is you look to for your identity, for your worth, for your value, for your distinctiveness, Whatever voice you are listening to from the outside, that will always be your center. And to run from the face of God is to not to have God in your center. It's to place something else in that place. And here's the thing. We will always have something there. And we will always be sold to it and controlled by it. Unless the Lord is there himself. And so here's what the running prophet tells us. You can have all this going on under the surface and still look like a good Christian, still look like a good person, still look like you are moral and religious on the outside. And underneath it all, you can still forge an identity not based on God and God's will, but on something else, which is the essence. This is the essence of sin. I mean, Augustine said it this way. He said, the essence of sin is a disordered love. It's a wrongly ordered love. It's loving something besides God too much. It's having something other than the Lord at the center of your life. It's mortgaging yourself to that so that you can have a sense of self that you desperately need if you don't have God at the center. Because we all need this affirmation from somewhere. And let me pull it all together by showing you what was really going on in the center of Jonah's life, what was really controlling his life. You see... God has come along at the very beginning of the book, and what he's doing is he's exposing Jonah. He's exposing and revealing what was really at the center, really at the core of his life. And as a result, Jonah's whole identity simply blew up. It imploded. And so what was this true source of identity underneath the surface for Jonah? Why was he so desperate to run away from Nineveh? Well, the natural idea 
is that he was afraid. He was scared. And that makes sense. I mean, it's reasonable to think that, knowing the Assyrians, that he's running away because he's afraid they won't repent. And let's face it, given their reputation, if they didn't repent, Jonah was as good as dead. But when you get to chapter 4, verse 2, we learn something again, very startling. And again, it's one of the great surprises in the book. We learn the reason Jonah ran away in the first place is not because he's afraid that they won't repent. He's afraid that they will repent. See, here's something I haven't gotten to yet, but Jonah is a successful leader of a successful nation. In 2 Kings uh, chapter 14, it tells us that Jeroboam II was the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, and he was engaging in a very successful military expansion campaign. And you know why he did it? You know, it says in Scripture that he did so at the word of Jonah, the son of Amittai. It's the very same Jonah we are looking at now. Jonah supported the king's expansion policy. Jonah would have spoken out in favor of it with his preaching. The king was happy with Jonah, and Jonah was happy to be liked by the king. Jonah was a successful leader and a successful nation, and Assyria repented. If God spared Assyria, then Assyria continued to be a threat to Israel. But it goes beyond that because in this era of prosperity, it was an era of, era of great prosperity for the people of God. The people had, in this era of prosperity had lost their way vis-a-vis -vis God and His mission for them. Instead of desiring to be a blessing to others, to be an encouragement to other nations, showing them the greatness of their God, Israel had grown proud and haughty. They had grown self-centered and self-focused feeling themselves superior to everyone outside the nation. And Jonah was a representation, a representative of all that. Jonah would have definitely been one of those people, as we talked about, those Jews that we talked about a couple weeks ago, who woke up each morning and, and thanked God that he was not a Gentile dog, that he wasn't born a Gentile dog. See, the book of Jonah is meant to be a real, but in some sense, proverbial indictment of the ugliness of Israel's nationalism and racism. And so when Jonah ran, he was showing what was really in his heart at the center of it. Jonah was showing us what was really where he was getting his value, what was in the center of his life. And he was saying, in essence, more important to me than pleasing God and doing what God asks of me, more important than that is my national pride. It's my identity as a leader of a successful nation. Jonah is saying, that's what gives me identity. And if anything goes wrong with that, I will not have a self, and my life will implode, and that's exactly what happened. Something did go wrong. God showed up, and he exposed Jonah. So let me end today by asking you some questions. Do you know your own heart? Do you know what you're really living for? Do you know what's really at the center of your life? Because unless you come to grips with a competitor, and there is a competitor in every one of our lives, there's a competitor for the centrality of our hearts. If you don't know what that is, you won't see the death struggle in your heart between Jesus and whatever the alternative is. You won't see the peril that your heart is in. But here's the good news. God loves you too much to leave you in that place. And we know that because he sent his one and only son to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And we're gonna look at all that in much more detail next week. But do you know your heart? Let's pray. Lord, thanks for 
this time to look at the problem, the problem of our sinful hearts, our hearts that uh, desperately need affirmation, and we seek it in so many different places. And so, Lord, I pray that you would wake us up to competitors, uh, competitors to yourself and to your will in our lives. And, Lord, draw us, woo us back um, for desire to you, for you to be in the center of our life. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take our offering now. You can do that online at ethoschicago.com, and then let's sing our doxology together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures
thing before the benediction. It's what I've been saying every week, but it's so important. Uh, and it's simply this. If you're going through any issues, any problems, uh, we want to be there for you, no matter what it is, um, physical, emotional, spiritual, financial, please let us know uh, because we want to be there for you and to walk with you uh, in whatever it is you're going through. So just that reminder. And so now let us receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May he turn his countenance toward you and give you peace. And now as God's people go in peace and spread God's peace. And all God's people said, Amen. <laughs>